Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The content industry is constantly evolving. To keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable has been used by companies like Time Magazine, Group 9 Media, and BuzzFeed Motion Pictures. It lets you manage your entire creative process from ideation to content creation. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. You can try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash Recode Media to receive $50 in free credits. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. If you like this show, please tell someone else about this show. This is a very exciting crossover episode of Recode Media. I'm sitting here with Ezra Klein, founder of Vox.com. What's your current title, Ezra? Editor-at-large. Editor-at-large. Polymath. You are a... Uh, That's not actually in my title. TV guy. Now a Netflix guy. Now a Netflix guy. Writing a book guy. Fighting for thousands of words with, with other podcast hosts, the <laughs> email guy. We'll talk about all that. Um, but we're talking today specifically about the Netflix show. What's the name of the Netflix show? Explained. Is it it's just called Explained? It is just called Explained. Just I should know some of this since I'm a Vox Media employee. This is some solid research you've done. Yeah, I did some Googling. Title? I watched some episodes. <laughs> uh, they're great. So, so this is, here, in your words, tell me what the show is. So we came up with the idea for this show a couple of years back. And when we launched Vox, there were a couple of ideas behind the whole operation, I would say. And one of the big ones was that the underlying technology on which we were doing journalism had changed. It had changed in a bunch of ways, but one of the ways that it had changed is it had become persistent. So, you know, when you're writing in a newspaper or you're showing something on cable news, one of the fundamental qualities of that is it's going to go away. Right. People can't keep the newspaper in their house forever. They run out of room. It gets moldy. They breathe in spores. It gets sick. Um, cable news, after something airs, it's gone. Like, wh where do you find it? One of the things about the digital era is that things stick around. Um, you have links, and not only are those links always available if you're doing your sort of hygiene on your website correctly, but they can be updated. They can be put back on the front page. I mean, they're always manipulable. And similarly, at the same time, we were seeing the development. It was a little bit um, uh, newer, but we were seeing the development when we launched Vox of the Netflixes and Amazon Primes and Hulus and so on of the world, where you all of a sudden had these libraries of content, of video content that were, again, always there. And so we began thinking, you know, how could we do, what would it mean for explainer journalism, the, the, the kind of stuff we love, and we can talk about what that is, to be in a place where instead of going away, it stuck around. What would it mean to create a show where we were telling people about um, and, and trying to help them understand really important things in the world around us, but we were doing it with the knowledge that somebody would be watching these episodes in a year, in three years. And so this show explained is um, what we're doing with it is picking every week a new topic, um, the racial wealth gap or monogamy or cryptocurrency. And trying to give people a real understanding of that topic, talking to the top people in it, um, trying to, to, to work our way through the thorniest questions of it, and recognizing that what we're doing here is laying a groundwork. We want it to be the case that if you watch our crypto episode, our racial wealth gap episode, that you now understand that issue well enough that all the stuff that will be new and disposable and changing about it in the coming years will make sense, that if there's another Mt. Gox hack or whatever, it all makes sense to you from here on out. This is a very Ezra Klein answer to what is your Netflix show. That's great. 
You're welcome. Um, so another way of putting it, the shorter version is these are— I don't are, do shorter versions. These are, I know. It's great. Uh, we were talking once about podcasts, and I said, you said, you know, your podcasts are running a half an hour at the time. That seems too short. I'm like, yeah, it's about right for me. He said, I need to do at least 90 minutes. Oh, yeah. We're not going to get to 90 today. Uh, but these are 15 You've to You've not seen how long my coming answers are. And <laughs> these are 15 <laughs> to 18-minute videos, which is unusual for Netflix. They have not really done short form up until now. Uh, and these are— if, if you've seen a Vox.com video on YouTube or Facebook, pretty similar, right? I don't think so, actually. Okay. I think that there, there are certainly ways in which they're informed by. Um, there's no doubt that this is a scaling up of journalism we've done. But By the way, I don't, I don't mean that as an I insult. I don't mean that in a bad way. I think our videos are amazing. They're great. Um, they've, they've been nominated for, for big awards. They're, people Emmys, like Emmys watching are the awards them. you're mentioning. They, they like watching them. They're genuinely good. Um, it's not like lots of other video you've seen on the internet. It's, it's really great stuff. And to me, it seemed like, oh, you've taken a format that you've gotten really good at. You've taken the people who create that stuff, and you're porting it to Netflix. And I talked to someone here. They said, oh, there's more budget. But you can't really tell there's more budget unless you're producing it. And, and, and I yeah, I disagree look, with that. So again, it looks like you've taken one thing that works and said, well, we're just going to move it over here and tweak it a little bit, but bring it basically to a new distribution format. So what the, the place where I'm not sure I buy into that, and I think that might just be, you know, look, look, I'm on the other side of the camera on this stuff, so I kind of see what, what goes into on the other end. The kinds of questions we have been able to take on and answer in our, the bulk of our web video were just a very different kind of question. And so the scale and ambition of the journalism was we couldn't we couldn't hit some of the things we wanted to hit in the way we wanted to hit them. Um, when you're doing a video and you are going for somewhere between three and seven minutes and you're doing it with one producer and you've got like a week to work on it, at the beginning of the editorial process, you have to define a question that you can actually take on that way. And there are many questions you can. Um, and I think that that team that, that we've in general done a really good job on those kinds of questions. But say the racial wealth gap is not one of them. Um, you can't, you can't you guys, do the kinds of on-the-ground reporting combined with— One um, of your most successful videos is explains the Syrian civil yep. war, right? So that, that worked. I agree with you. Right? That's a pretty naughty, heavy question. So we have had some videos— We've not been able to do this with everyone, right? We have had some videos that have been big, ex ambitious expansions of what our normal are. And over the past couple of years, we've begun to do more of them. But they have not, we've not been able to do that at a clip or on a site. If you look at that Syrian Civil War video, for instance, one of the things about it is that there's no on-the-ground reporting in it. There's no interviewing in mm -hmm. it. It's an extraordinary video. It's one of the best things Vox has ever produced. But the set of tools we could bring to bear on it was really different. Right. So now, I think if you're inside and, and yeah. I'm a little enough inside to go, oh, they went on location and they talked to so-and-so. But I think if you're a regular consumer, you think, oh, this is a short video. It's, it's shorter than an hour-long documentary. It's, it's, it's short enough that I could watch it en route to something on my phone. I made a point of watching your screeners on my phone. They work really well there. Um, it's, 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 again, it's, it seems really um, – like a logical extension of stuff you're already doing. It's the same talent you're doing at Joe Poster. The guy who creates all your videos is doing it. No, it's a whole new team. The credits look all the same. I mean, I know that you brought in new people because I had to go to the WeWork for a while because I was displaced. No, so, so I, sorry, I want to be careful on this yeah. because I don't want people who deserve credit not to get it. Uh -huh. As with a lot of things, there are members of our original team who are involved. I'm an EP, Joe's an EP. We have 
a 20-person team that is all new on the show. Right. Now, a lot of our other journalists are involved. Some of the episodes come from folks who have been on, some from folks who don't. But I just want to be careful on this because a lot of people have come in the past couple of months, worked incredibly hard, and I I don't – I – yeah, I don't want to take credit from them. Duly noted. Um, what is this the show that you pitched? I know you guys were interested in TV for a while. Is this the show you thought we'll do from the beginning? Is this show that this is this the show that once you got to Netflix, you said you wanted to do? This is the show we this pitched. Evolve? One of the really great things about working with Netflix on this has been from the beginning they were into the thing we wanted to do. Not the things we were a little worried, but sort of willing to get cornered into doing, if that makes sense. Because I'm assuming that a version of this, or a version of when you went out and talked to people at various networks, is that, oh, let's do an Ezra Klein interview show, or other variants of that, or instead, let, let's, not, let, what, let's, let's not take what you're doing on the internet and put that on our TV network or on our, on our SVOD. Let's do something else. So we never pitch to Netflix or most of these networks. We have, I've talked to people about interview shows at different times and have not gone into that direction. But when we went out and did our road show with different networks, we decided that the first show we were going to do, sort of no matter what, was going, if we, if we were going to go into TV or streaming or one yeah. of these networks, we were going to start with the explainer journalism. That if Fox was going to create a beachhead there, it was going to be in our core editorial mission for the audience. It wasn't going to be a kind of spinoff or secondary thing, which if it had been me or, you know, you can imagine a documentary series. It was based off of like a particular, right. you know, thing we did. There, there, there are things you can do where you're monetizing some of the intellectual property you've created as a, as a journalistic outlet into some kind of TV. It was really important to us. You know, who knows where we go from here? But it was really important to us that the first thing we did was, you know, we have made a promise to the audience's Vox about what we are going to do for you. And the first show we create is going to fulfill that promise. Netflix is is kind of core to, to what I think about and write about and talk about. I make a point of bringing a lot of people who make Netflix shows. I want to ask them what that process is like. That's why you're, one of the reasons you're here. Uh, but inevitably, they sort of say, yeah, we, we pitched the show to Netflix. And they said, great. And we went and made it. And they didn't really have a lot of notes. Um, and I keep waiting for that to change, especially as Netflix gets bigger and has more power and also has a better idea of what they want. So what was what was their level of input like on this show? I don't – one thing, is, to be honest, is I don't have anything to compare it to. Uh-huh. I have never um, been an EP on a yeah. show that was working with a – I found them really easy to work with. They've had notes. Yeah. Um, but I just – I found their notes in general really helpful. Well, uh, did they ever say, look, we have 150 million, 125 million, 100 million subs. We know from our data – this is a big thing when they started doing uh, House of Cards. This was going to be data-informed. Um, our data tells us that our customers like X or Y and not Z. Did you get that kind of feedback? No. No. What kind of feedback did you get then? I do not know what feedback I should uh, convey here, so I'm probably not going to go too deeply into it. But the kind of feedback I got is very much the kind of feedback we have expected. Yeah. I mean, they watch the episodes, and they send us a series of, ideas on things they liked and didn't like in them. Um, we green light in consultation with them. They have, to my great gratitude, had a fair amount of trust in us. So um, I think there have been places where we've been like, let's try this. And they and there's been a little bit like, but, you know, in the end, they've, you know, listened if we think something is a really good idea. And we also take their feedback seriously. I mean, it has been a partnership. I But again, one of the hard things for me here is that I can't tell you if that's different or yeah, it's yeah, I'm not asking you to compare it to Tress. I'm asking you to compare sort of what you thought it would be like going in. This is mostly, it, to be honest, I 
think it's been more or less like what I thought it would be like. And this this is a little different. For, in addition to these being short form, they're going to release a bunch at a time, right? So we are going to release three at once on the 23rd, on May 23rd. And then after that, it'll be one a week. And the first season is 20 episodes, so it'll be one a week for 17 weeks. And these aren't time-pegged, right? These will mm-hmm. be about—and they're intentionally so. The idea is that they can live for a long time. Um, We're intentionally—one of the things that I think has been important in the editorial process is we are being pretty tough on ourselves. And, and Netflix has been very bought in on this, that these are shows you should be able to watch in a year. We, we should at least be able to believe you can watch them in two years, right? A lot of the things we are doing here— Certainly, there will be changes in the underlying topic, but they should not be big enough or we should not expect them to be big enough that this is disposable. It's not going to like – we're not doing you know, the Trump and Russia investigation. That's not a topic that would work for the show because by the time we brought that episode out, right. that episode would be out Do you of think, date. boy, it would be interesting if we can't do – we can't do Trump-Russia, right? There's no way it's constantly going to get lapped by news. But is there something we can do that has echoes of this that's relevant mm-hmm. that goes 50 years back? We definitely are thinking yeah. a lot about that. So we are definitely – looking, and this is a thing about explanatory journalism in general, what, what we're trying to do there is find the context around issues people are talking about, things people are seeing, things that they're living out in their lives. What is this piece of news or what is this part of life actually part of? What is its bigger frame? And so, you know, we're often looking for what we call the zoom out. We're often looking for, okay, yeah, it looked like it was part of this, but step back and it's actually part of that. And so on a lot of these different topics, we are seeing something we see in the news or we are seeing something that people just talk about a lot um, and trying to then ask the question, okay, do we have something bigger we can put this in the context of after doing the reporting and after doing the research. So you're kind of looking like, oh, okay, I get where this fits into everything. Like, I get what this is really part of. You, Vox.com is uh, published on the internet, which really means you create stuff that is designed to be consumed on a mobile phone. I told you I made a point of watching this stuff on a phone. Netflix, majority of their viewing still happens on a TV. Um, have you thought about, all right, are people going to watch this on a phone? Are they going to watch it on TV? Do we create things differently with that in mind? I This would probably be a better Joe Posner question because yeah. I'm a little bit less involved in the visual design of the show. I or don't, even just the, how they're going to – do you think about how they're going to consume it time-wise, I, anything else? I have not beyond – we try to be very audience-focused, but I don't know. I, I have a little bit of a weird view on this for compared to a lot of other editors in this space. I think that we in the media are spending too much time trying to game platforms and devices – And there are, particularly early in the adoption of a new platform or device, there do tend to be quirks of that uh, space that you can take advantage of and boost viewership or readership or whatever it is for a little while. But over the long run, actually, people tend to gravitate towards quality content across different areas. So, of course, it has to be usable on different devices. If you have something that does not display on a phone, it is not going to get watched or read or whatever on a phone. But I am a lot less sold than other people are that these devices have very different habits or these platforms have very different habits. And and I think the to me the archetypal example of this is Facebook silent video. Um, Facebook comes out, they create a product that will do autoplay. I mean you you guys and your your audience knows this story better than I do probably. But everybody jumps on that and begins like pumping out this silent newsreel video. Silent newsreel that has to get your attention in the first few seconds, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, so it's front-loaded that way. And 
You know, so one way of interpreting that is, oh, wow, people have found a whole new form of user behavior here, right? There's this big untapped demand out there that there wasn't before, and we got to fill it. Another version is actually we're kind of gaming the system, and it's going to work for like two years. And our view at Vox is we're kind of – this is kind of gaming the system. We're not going to do this. And so like what is our biggest ever Facebook video? As you said, um, it's a a seven-and-a-half-minute dive into the Syrian civil war. We began seeing that kind of thing really early, and that informed us in saying, oh, you know what? People actually – people do not just want this other thing. They don't just want like this low touch, low um, low energy thing. They they actually want good stuff and it's probably not there. Yeah, One there's a corollary not where it it's not there. a couple years ago, the the, the most engaged story, uh, what, 2016 I think it was, uh, per chartbeat was a very long ISIS piece. Right. And we, again, at Vox, we've seen this over and over and over and over again. So I tend to, there's also this whole thing about, you know, is YouTube and Facebook videos super different? Yep. And some places have found it is. We have not. Like, we have made decisions about how we did our video, that we were only going to do video. We were only going to judge the video we did on how people consumed it as video. And the more we did that, the more we found that the things that really worked would work in a lot of places. So when we've thought about this show, um, we are thinking a lot about the Netflix audience that has different characteristics than the audience we've built. Um, There's going to be some overlap, but obviously it's a much bigger audience. So we think a lot about that. But the question of, you know, are people going to watch it on a phone or a tablet yeah. or a, I don't, I think if it's good, they're going to watch I it. I think the other related interesting question you don't, you can't have an answer for yet because you won't know is you kind of have an idea of how things travel on YouTube and Facebook. For one thing, you have data that you can sort of see, oh, people came through this door to watch this show and they stayed this long. Uh, so one, Netflix, you've it's a black box. They're not going to tell mm-hmm. you what the viewership is. And you're also not going to know how they're getting to it. And you're not going to know how people found it and how much of this is dependent on Facebook putting it, I'm sorry, Netflix putting it on their homepage versus you talking about your Twitter feed, people finding it that way. I would assume, um, especially someone like you who's grown up digital growing up di- publishing things digitally, <laughs> getting feedback. A child get, of the web. A child of the web, a child of feedback, right? Um, and, and this is one of the things Vox Media used to pride itself on, I think still does, is we can we, we know a lot about the work of publishing and, and, and seeing what works and being able to play with levers. And yes, fundamentally, we, might, we want to make good content, but we're smart about this. Here you're making a show, you're handing it to Netflix, you're kind of done. So as you say, I don't actually know what kinds of information we're going to get back. So that's part of it. But but let me say something actually broader that it's actually a topic I would love to talk about. I think that a lot of the analytics talk in the media has been bullshit for a long time. I think that the amount that people do that thing you're talking about is not zero, but it is like 15%. By the way, Ezra, of what's out there. I agree because I right. came to Vox Media and thought, all right, show me the magical levers. And yep. there's less levers. There's no magical think. levers. And there's some the basic clo- SEO stuff. Yep. And, there's, and by the way, they've, we've got smart people working on this stuff and they mm-hmm. can tell you this thing performed this way. But fundamentally, there's no magic key. But that's different than having zero insight into what you make for Well, Netflix. here's where I was going to go with this. Yeah. So I think that one of the places where there's particularly no magic key is I think if you look at. Um, if you look at BuzzFeed, not BuzzFeed News, but like BuzzFeed, you know, kind of core yep. work listicles, that kind of thing, which I'm not saying with any – I actually like that. I think there's been a lot of tremendous innovation there. I think they really did do a version of this more than just about anybody else did where they would say, OK, we have found a format and now we're going to start plugging things into the format until the format dies on us. And then we're going to find another format. Yep. And, you know, th- this went on a lot of times. When you're doing news or news-adjacent work – 
Um, you know, here I'm not even talking yet about the Netflix show, but just about what we've done at Vox. I think there's a lot less of that. I think it's true. I've been at the Post. I know how people operate at a lot of other organizations. I think that I think this is actually true at BuzzFeed News too. Would be my guess. You know, you have a bit of a sense, right? There, there are things people care about more than they care about other things. But you are working one with a issue space and like an actual news space you can't control. You can't just say, well, two years ago people really loved reading about the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yeah. So today we're gonna, you know, I mean, no, she's not running for president anymore. By the way, that's a lot of the analytics. Are people like this thing? Make more of this thing. It's basically that crude. You can see. Yep. You can see and, the effects of that all over media. And so like. For instance, where I like, if you're doing news, it just doesn't work because you, you don't have that control or, over you, it. It works in a very bad way. Or it which works is, in a very bad way. Do more of that story in every iteration. Do 20 versions of that story. But so often, the reason people even like that story was that the wave of yeah. the the sort of current event space had crested there for a minute. I mean, you know, there's a week where you can write about. Last week, the Iran deal was in the news because um, Donald Trump tore it up. So writing a lot about that had a different chart beat valence than it will have three weeks from now. It just did. Like people's energy and attention got it focused on yep. it. So, okay. So to bring this back to, to the Netflix show, I just, this is something that we kind of came to a long time ago, but I have a lot more comfort with the idea that a lot of what we do is employing a editorial taste and a sense of our our audience and also a sense of like what we think is important in the world and what we can find a good good set of answers to. When I launched Vox, I sat down, um, I actually don't remember who it was, so I'm, I'm, I apologize to, to whatever editor gave me this advice. And I was asking him, like, what is it like being an editor-in-chief? What, is you, what do you do? What is your job? I'd never done it before. And he said to me, the job of the editor-in-chief is to impose my editorial sensibility on the publication. And I had such, I recoiled. I had such a negative reaction to that. Like that is so, like, who, like, who cares what you think, right? Like who, <laughs> um, you know, use analytics or like yeah. have some sense of the world. And over time, I, I, I'm not saying it's, you know, my sense. I don't really, I don't know. There's really, a sensibility. It but wasn't there created is, out of nowhere. It wasn't just created out of data. I've come to believe a lot more that for an organization to, to, to develop a sensibility, and a sense of what is important in the world and what, how to write or video or podcast or whatever about those things in ways that are interesting, that that actually is more of the work. And so I, I just um, – it's funny because you just asked me about, about the – I've not even really been thinking about the analytics of the show. I mean I'll be upset if the show is not – if like Netflix comes to me and says, you know, nobody's watching yeah. your show. So we're not going to – you know, that would be sad. But, um, but in terms of how we're thinking about coming up with the episodes – it really hasn't changed our process at all. When we sit down and think about features for Vox or when we sit down and think about videos for the YouTube channel or whatever, we're not sitting around thinking, well, what worked on Chartbeat eight months ago? We're you know, actually asking this question of like, what feels interesting and important and fundamental to us right now? There is a middle ground, right, where you say, hey, we made this thing. We liked it. No one watched it. No one read it. Um, so what went wrong here? Did Is the topic uninteresting? Did we deliver it incorrectly? Did we make it incorrectly? And I think that's kind of the middle of the road now for a digitally savvy publisher today, sort of thinking through that. Like, all right, we're going to – obviously we have to cover news or obviously we have to do things that are important. But if we're not finding an audience, we have to think about why we're not finding an audience. Oh, always. Right. And I, so for you, this is the yeah. – just back to Netflix, right? You're handing it to them and they're going to come back and it's going to be binary basically. Like, yes, give us more or no, don't. And they, if they say yes, give us more, they'll give you some notes about 
maybe more of this or less of that, but that uh, probably not much more than that. I, it's a great question. You yeah. probably know better than me. Well, we're going to find out. <laughs> All right. Um, as we said, I asked a good question, so I don't want to press my luck. We're going to take a break. We're going to listen to an ad or two from a sponsor that lets you listen to the show for free. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Farmers are already using it to help increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provide access to weather data and analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So, as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. Hey, our friends at The Verge have launched a new podcast that's hosted by Casey Newton, who's very tall and very talented. Here is Casey to tell you more about it. Hello, listeners of Recode Media. This is Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor of The Verge. My dream is that one day Peter Kafka will interview me about my success in media. And so I started a new podcast called Converge. Each week we'll bring you fresh ideas and a sense of what it's like to build a company from the people who are actually doing it. And we'll do it all with games that no one has ever played. It's like HQ trivia if there was only one contestant and it was literally impossible to win money. So far, we've got guests lined up from Google, Lyft, Pocket, and that bodega near your house. You know, the one with the weird cat. The first episode drops Wednesday, May 23rd, wherever you get your podcasts. Converge. You've never heard a tech show like this. I'm back here with Ezra Klein. You know I'm back here with Ezra Klein because you listened to us talk for 22 minutes or so. Yeah, but life has changed. <laughs> like, who's to even say we're the same people we were a couple minutes ago? Whoa, man, we're all living in I just had Michael Pollan on, on my podcast talking about psychedelics, like... You know, like constancy, even in mental state, is a is a real is a real weak. When is that one going to air? Uh, it just came out today. Um, I wonder if you beat Kara Swisher to the punch. She's very excited by by Michael Pollan. Yeah, it's uh, it blew her mind. <laughs> well, it is literally. I think I called mine a, a mind expanding conversation with Michael Pollan. It's a mind blowing conversation. Like not so much for the psychedelics part of it uh, as the theories of consciousness. I want to stop this podcast and go listen to your podcast, but can't do that. But you know what? If all of Peter's listeners do want to stop this podcast and go listen to my podcast, I'm not going to argue. Wherever you listen to fine podcasts, <laughs> just like this one, go listen to the Ezra Klein show. Um, we've talked a little. You were referencing a few times about launching Vox.com. Um, that was how many years ago now? Four. Four years ago. Prior to that, you were at the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. You ran Wonk blog for them. You were a wonderkind. Yep. Am I pronouncing wonderkind correctly? Well, I mean, that's arguable. Not the pronunciation. There were profiles that said so. It's it's great when you go I back know. and research someone and you find multiple competing profiles around the same time. There's a great New Republic profile of you. There's a great New York Magazine profile of you. Right before you launched, right after you launched, it was great. And you you've referenced very unco- It's like I get uncomfortable just hearing. The, yeah, like, but if you don't the remembrance. If of you these don't profiles. want a profile, don't don't launch a giant sure, operation well, for Vox fair. Media. What has changed at Vox.com from conception to today in terms of where you thought this thing was going to go and where it's ended up? A lot, actually. Um, So here's the biggest thing. I don't think that our theory of the journalism has changed that much. But our theory of what that would be, what that journalism would be, how we would show that theory has changed dramatically. So we had this idea, um, and a big part of the idea was, to, to shorthand it, was this Wikipedia for the news. And 
I had been at the Post, as you say, and I covered policy. So I'd covered in the past couple of years Obamacare and the financial crisis and the debt ceiling, you know, fights in 2011 and, and all these things that were happening. And one thing that united a lot of those issues was they had a kind of fast-moving news story on top of a poorly understood but very important topic. Right. So take Obamacare. Um, I would say by the time that passed, so a year and a half or however long into the uh, debate over it, the number of people who could really explain that bill well, given how many times it had changed and so on, it was pretty small. Um, and I always felt at Wonk Blog uh, that we had done, honestly, the best coverage that we possibly could have of the question, like what happened in Obamacare today? You know, just like what happened, yep. what argument the about the public stuff. option, the iterative stuff. Like, I felt like we were about as good as anybody was at that. Sarah Cliff, I think, is genuinely the best healthcare reporter in the country. I mean, we really worked hard on that. But I would get all these emails from people saying, I don't understand the individual mandate or the subsidies or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, if you look back in June, we had a piece about the individual and mandate. You, and you would link to them. I'd link to them. But the degree to which across the entire media, we were not giving you it attached to all these new stories we were doing, just like an ongoing, continuously updated, here's what Obamacare is so that you could join the news story midstream and like get caught up and then come right. in. It was really frustrating to me. Um, it, it was Again, it's, it was much, place it's much better. We it's much better than the pre-internet era. Yep. Where there's literally, you, there's no way to go back other than literally going to the library. I right? don't think it was that much better. If you wanted to, you could go find the stuff I, on the internet. Th that's exactly the thing. I think a huge failure is when we put the bulk of the work on Correct. the audience. You have yeah. to be like a, like a Google Jedi to understand what collection of keywords do I need to... Because also, like, think about this, right? Let's say it's about the individual mandate. You're searching individual mandate. The number of stories written that have a recency bias in Google about the individual... I mean, if you're trying to find, like, when did Wonk blog at the Washington Post write, it's like, story also, like, what's here's my source what the individual mandate... Do I know it's who very this is? hard, actually. Yep. So I... I think that we were not doing a good job meeting people. Like, even if people had the curiosity for it, I don't think we were doing a good job meeting them. It was possible, but I, I, I don't, I, I think we we're failing. So then we had this idea of like, okay, what if the reporters who are covering these stories are creating and continuously updating as they cover these stories, these sort of underlying topic guides? And that's the, the kernel of the idea for Vox. And when we came to Vox Media, we built a publishing platform that was really designed to uh, showcase this idea. And at that time, the particular product that to me, if you had asked me in 2000, I believe we launched in 2014, if you had asked me in 2014, like what will be, like what will be whether or not Vox succeeds or fails, like what will be the hinge? I would say, do card stacks take off? Right. So this card stack idea, mm -hmm. if you're very old like me, remember hyper cards? Yep. These, again, these sort of digital version of index cards. Here's yes. the stuff you need to need, need to know. It's attached to the story. You were very product specific, Very right? product. It was a very, it was a product and workflow-based idea of explanatory journalism. And so we did these card stacks and we had this whole thing like you could, they, we had special links and they would show up as like yellow highlighting on a word. So it's like if we ever mentioned the individual mandate, you could click on that and up would come right. the card for the individual mandate and the card for the individual mandate. We're going to bring this library to you, yep. organized and sorted so you don't be, have to go fetch it. Would be embedded in the broader cards for Obamacare. I mean, I, I loved it. Like I will still like get excited yeah. and like my heart race is talking about it. What happened? Um, th those were great, and some of them did incredibly well. Like our card stack for ISIS had, I don't know, 10, 20 million views, something like that. Uh, the thing that happened is the platform's fractured. 
So when we launched Vox, there was no Facebook Instant Articles, no Google AMP. Um, Flipboard was much smaller than it is now. The, you know, there's no Apple News. There's no Google yep. Newsstand. We the the possible returns on very tightly designing a platform to do exactly what you wanted it to do were very high, or potentially at least very high. Then very very quickly the platforms began to splinter. It was very clear that the audience was going to be primarily off-site. They were going to be reading you on Facebook, literally on Facebook, on their phone. They were going to be reading you on Google, on their mm -hmm. phone. Like Apple News is a huge thing for us. And so product things we built couldn't port you think that's, those places. You think the problem is the distribution, not, not the fact one that of them. people didn't really want to engage with the product that you'd made in the way you wanted them to engage? No, we actually found that the engagement was pretty good. Yeah. Um, I won't remember the exact numbers, but I think it was something like if you came to a Vox story, and again, this is from memory, so I apologize if I get it wrong, you like 7% of people would click on the card stack. And if you clicked on a card stack on average, you would look at least four or five cards. That to me was pretty good. Like that was like the user behavior I was hoping for. Um, now, what I will say was that the... The two things that made this hard were, one, the platforms began fracturing. So just continuing to pump resources into that was not seeming – we went on to Snapchat Discover around this time. I mean, like yeah. a lot was happening where you couldn't do this. And then the other thing was that it was also a huge workload, like a huge, huge, huge workload. And so to have that much work going into something that only, let's say, 30 or 40 percent of our audience could see, it just didn't make sense. So you create this product, this bespoke product on a mm -hmm. bespoke CMS – um, doesn't work, and you replace it with what? So the thing that then happens, and it took me a while to see this was happening, was that the kind of, what we did was we built an organization around like the values that got instantiated in card stacks. Um, we trained writers. I mean, you would come in and as a writer, you'd have to like, one of the first things you do is we like make you start doing card stacks, like show you how to do it. And we do editing and maybe we'd release it, maybe we wouldn't. But it's part of how you learned how to be box. And we began to see that uh, the ideas of that were inflecting a lot of different products we were making. Um, our videos, which of course never had card stacks attached to them, they were really explanatory. They, they really kind of had the same DNA in them, but it was being interpreted in a different way right. into so a different so form. So creating medium. a special mm -hmm. sort of content vessel for this, right? You just sort of bring the idea of explaining which kind of you had from the get-go anyway, right? Very you much. were called explainers, just make them more explainery. Yep. And so we, you know, Snapchat Discover was a whole other thing where I think we really created something cool there when we were on that, that were, it was like explainers on Discover. And so over and over, I mean, and now you see it's like Today Explained, our, our daily podcast to me is like such a beautiful explainer project, um, explained on Netflix. We ended up creating, and, and again, I, I didn't, we didn't, I should say, I didn't see this happening as it was happening. I was very like depressed that I felt like the kind of card stack moment was going to it was going to pass by because I had a lot of like personal love invested in this project. Um, but we'd created not a product but a culture. And as new opportunities came, and one thing we were good at doing was, as Jim Bankoff would put a thriving on change. We were, you know, when things changed, we were there and we would like jump in and figure it out. Sometimes and, we call this a pivot, right? Um, and you wouldn't – people – pivot's a freighted word sometimes, but I think of it as in the good way of this thing isn't working. Let's try a different thing. And if you're not doing that, you're probably not succeeding. Maybe. I, I don't – you would probably know the language better than I do. I, as I understand the pivot language, it's actually moving into different 
like into a different idea of what you're selling. Often it can be, yeah. So, and that wasn't what we did. Um, we really held to explanatory journalism of which, you know, in the end, Cardstack was one yeah. product in it. It turned out instead of like in my head being like the product of it, it was just one product of it. It worked in its time and then its time passed. Um, but it was much more, it turned out what we what we'd built was much more of like a culture and a training ground around explanatory journalism that then as things came up, we would create new products that reinterpreted that mission and those values and that approach in different ways. Do you ever have second thoughts about the word explain and any, any derivations of that? I don't. Some, sometimes it, uh, it's used pejoratively. Others sure. discuss you guys or I just saw my feet. Oh, Vox tells you how you should feel about mm-hmm. this. Um, do you ever think, well, we don't want to seem prescriptive? Um, I always think that. Useful. I don't think uh, – this is something I, I used to tell the staff um, very early on. Like this is not going to succeed unless the brand of it becomes strong enough that people make fun of us for it. Would I love it if nobody ever heard it pejoratively? And I do – I don't like it when people think explained has this kind of definitive meaning because that isn't how we mean it. Um, to do explanatory journalism is an approach to doing journalism. It isn't to say it's the last word. Mm-hmm. A thing has many different explanations potentially. But that said, no, I mean, I think that it does define the journalism we do. And also people understand that it is what we do. And in the same way that um, I, I don't think there's a version where you get uh, <laughs> where you get a space like that and you get it and you get it a little bit more to yourself and Nobody ever has resentment around that or nobody ever gives you shit for it. And also, by the way, sometimes the shit is deserved, right? And by the way, the the version of it that I will say is what I hate is when we call something an explainer and it isn't. And then people are like, well, Vox said this was an explainer and I don't, you know, that's really bad. On the other hand, sometimes you do something that isn't an explainer and some people will be like, you know, well, Vox said it was going to explain, but here they've done this thing that, well, that's okay with me, right? Like we're an organization, we do many things and we have a core. Um, But so, no, I don't, I'm... The idea of actually defining ourselves around something has been such an incredible boon, both internally and externally, both internally in the way that we can help people who join the organization understand what we are and what we intend to be, and then externally in giving people a reason to want to work with us, um, giving people something that we actually do really well, and if they want this done for them, they should partner up with us. Uh, I don't I, – it's actually I think the single best thing we ever did. One of the reasons Wikipedia sucks is that you've got all these different voices. I really don't think Wikipedia sucks for it, the record. It, Wikipedia <laughs> is a great resource. It's terrible to read. It's it's super unsatisfying to read. Um, it's a great thing to be able to Google and get some generally agreed background. But if, if, it, if a topic has any kind of nuance and or any kind of debate, it often breaks, right? Go read Wikipedia on any kind of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? Because you've just got all these voices and they all just sort of agree to, to not agree on anything and it ends up as a muddle. Vox has a voice. You talked about it, it's kind of your voice. It's a center-left voice. Um, it's rational. Um, in 2018, we're in a world where yeah, we have alternative facts and, and, and the entire spectrum of sort of what is a fact and, and what's a viewpoint, it's all muddled. Um, how much time do you spend thinking about, all right, well, we want to make sure that we're clear about this is our bias or this is our ideological bent or we don't think we have that ideological bent or we do and let's counter it by getting in some someone mm-hmm. from the National Review to come write stuff for us as well? How, so, do you, how do you think about balancing all that? So this is something I think about a lot actually. And I have a couple answers on it. One is that I don't really think that in 2018 it's all that different than it was in 2016 or 2014 or, you know, the issue set has changed. I am not someone who actually buys into the idea that alternative facts and fake news are are some sort of very new thing or even the most difficult of the things we are facing. I think they're hypercharged. 
They're hypercharged, but they're hypercharged in the range of the range of bullshit. Yes, the range of bullshit that is in is in the discourse. Um, it's gotten much broader, right? It used to have to work really hard to find extremist viewpoints, and now they're delivered to you by the president of the United States. Sure. For the work we do, I actually think the difficulty of something like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a lot harder than the president calling the crowd size estimates at his inaugural fake news. Like, I just, when the president is this really hamstrungs lots of the news organizations, right? Well, the president said it, so we can't just say that's a bunch of bullshit. I don't, we I don't to even think it does hamstring them anymore. I think They're now— They're getting better at it, but it's, it's a couple I, years of them adapting to it. How do we sure. deal with someone who— either doesn't believe what he says, knows he's lying, doesn't care, and, by the, and seeps all the way through the administration. I don't know. I, I have a little bit of an alternative alternative view on this, alternative facts view on this, where it is true that I think the media had for a little while a somewhat ridiculous debate about whether or not you can call um, a flagrant untruth from President Trump a lie because like, maybe he yeah. believes a lie, yep. which I think, by the way, often he does believe things that are untrue. But I don't think it's truly it's truly reasonable to say that if you've been reading, say, the New York Times on Trump since 2016, you didn't know the president lies constantly. I just don't buy it. Yeah, no, I agree. So that's what. By thing. the way, if you're getting your news from Sinclair or like lots of other places, right? And and yep. by the way, you're watching the news. You're doing you're doing your part to be informed. But that was just true. Uh, again, I'm. I don't mean to be too uh, contrary on this, but yeah. the Fox News thing was true. In I mean, I covered Obamacare. Yep. Like I like that. No, in some ways, the fact that it's and, much more obvious now yeah. is more is more helpful to me because I can see what needs to be. Anyway, but you had a I think a slightly deeper question. I was asking about the Vox the Vox version of this. this. Yeah. So there are a couple things here. One is really around this question of how, when you're doing an explainer, do you simultaneously represent a debate that is contested and also represent the fact that in the end, maybe you've come to an explanation. Maybe you have come to believe that there is something true here um, versus something untrue. And how does that then differ from being a take, right? Are you just writing an op-ed column? Or you start with a set of commonly assumed facts or sure. what you believe to be commonly assumed facts. It would never occur to you that someone's right. got another or values. If you're If you're explaining a issue related to, say, gay marriage— and you believe that it's just like true, that as a human right, you know, you should be able to marry a same-sex partner you love. Like your explanation of that issue is going to be different than if you believe it is contrary to God's law. The, the, the genetics uh, episode of the Vox show that I just watched starts with the assumption that, yeah, of course we have science and that people have the ability to manipulate this stuff and we're not just leaving it up to— Of course, right. Exactly. So to me, this gets to some of these questions around you use the word objective earlier. I have worked in a lot of newsrooms, including newsrooms that were built around the idea of objectivity. I don't believe, and I never have, in this concept of objective journalism. Uh -huh. um, there's a great line from Hunter Thompson, which you may know, that the only time he ever saw objective journalism was on a closed secret camera in a Woolworths, <laughs> which I've always enjoyed. I know that one. Um, but obviously, people can try very hard to represent – people can try very, very hard to represent multiple sides of an yep. issue. But even in choosing what you are going to report on – you are making important choices, right? If you decide that day as a journalist, if it turns out that in your work, you only report on embarrassing things people on the right do, but every one of those stories you do yes, this is, is like very well constructed. To begin with. Every part of what a journalism does has some kind of biased yep. decision-making process. There's not a commonly received set of facts. So what we are trying to do is to be very transparent and um, 
and open in our process. And, and, and here's like the key to me distinction because I'm part of the generation of bloggers who came in and said like, oh, this objective journalism stuff, it's bullshit. You know, I actually think a lot of that ended up going too far. We sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater because you decide that, okay, sort of like the decision that you were going to end with an even-handed product, despite the fact that reality may not be even-handed, reality may be more to one side than the other, you then throw out the even-handed process too. And the thing that we try to preach internally to Vox is we do not demand that you come out on both sides of an issue, but we do want you to have an open and neutral process on your way to finding an answer on that issue. So if you're trying to do an explainer um, on something as contested and you haven't spoken to the smartest people contesting it, then you've not done the explainer, right? You have to earn the authority and you have to also show the best versions of the arguments you're rejecting in the end um, to have done uh, to have done the work. And so, I think there is a place to have like an like what I call like an even-handed process, even if you have a result that comes down on one side of an issue or another. Uh, and I think that that is where a lot of good work, not just at Vox but but elsewhere, is happening right now. Um, whereas. Pretending an issue does not have an answer is a way of not informing your audience. And also, though, pretending an issue has a clear answer when you've not done the work to even know if that answer is really true, when you've not done the work to understand well, the counterarguments. You're saying, well, let's hear from both sides, and that's, that's not acceptable. Yeah, exactly. I have a related question. Please. But first, I want to take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsors. And also, I see Golda looking at me. I'm going to ask, what, ask Golda what her question is. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The content industry is constantly evolving. To keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable has been used by companies like Time Magazine, Group 9 Media, and BuzzFeed Motion Pictures. It lets you manage your entire creative process from ideation to content creation. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. You can try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash Recode Media to receive $50 in free credits. I'm back here with Ezra Klein, and so are you. We were talking about bias and, and ideology. I have two related questions. Have you thought about saying, Vox, we're, we're left, center left, centrist, somewhere we're, we're on the leftist side of the, the political spectrum. Why don't we bring in a consistent voice from the right to counterbalance this. This is the New York Times version. Um, my Twitter the feed New York Times op-ed The New York Times op-ed version of this, which throws my Twitter feed into a frenzy. Mm-hmm. I'm a little confused about why the frenzy. Um, but you've seen versions of this now with the Times and the Atlantic, and lots of people are sort of dipping their toe in and saying, we're going to expose you to a view you're not normally used to seeing. We think this is a good idea. Um, we can debate why that tends to end in flames. But but why haven't you guys tried that? So my answers to these two questions are actually pretty linked. Um, one reason that it's important to me to not say, hey, Vox is a liberal publication, is that I'm not trying to have Vox be a liberal publication. And I should say I'm now at our large, so I shouldn't yep. speak of it like these are all my calls or not. But um, when I was running it, it was important to me not to do that because that's not my vision for it. Um, and But it is a center-left publication, right? So let me go through this. One, when we launched, particularly, we had some people in it who were on the right, um, who had been, who are libertarians and, you know, who who had different views. So even then, it actually was not the case that everybody there was a liberal. But it, there's no doubt that the bulk of the people there are center left, and in some cases, you know, more left. Over those years, um, I made a couple hiring runs at conservatives, and I didn't do it to 
kind of quote unquote balance it out. Yeah. I don't think that does. I don't think anybody cares. Like it's not like if I hired three conservatives, all of a sudden there'd be some. Forget balance. Just let's expose your exactly. readers to another viewpoint. I think that there are things that, you know, just as in other areas that are non-political, we have people who are, you know, covering from different groups and covering from different perspectives and just people who I think are good and maybe I disagree with them on a bunch of things, but I just think they're they're good at the work they do and we hired them. We made some hiring runs at folks who are on the right. And the folks we tried to hire didn't work out in part because it one of the reasons it's actually hard to create ideological diversity within a publication is that people do want to be in a publication where they feel their views are a little bit more the bulk of the views. It just feels more comfortable and I totally get that. Um so that's something that I wish I had been more successful at, to be honest. Um, it's something I tried to do. And it's something we've tried to do in other ways, like creating the big ideas section, which was something where we've, we publish a lot of views that we actually disagree with. Um, you know, we make sure those views are not um, just like a bunch of big ideas that Ezra Klein already holds. One of my lessons of all that was that it's tougher. You know, I did, I made a very conscious choice at the beginning to not create you know, a kind of liberal, like a like a self-consciously liberal publication. But even so, the way polarization, even within hiring structures and the nature of the media works, it gets hard once there's momentum internally around a kind of set of opinions, which, you know, are opinions that I hold and find congenial. Um, it gets harder to diversify out from them just because you know, it's a little so, bit of it's a little bit of a bigger ask to ask somebody to come so into an organization reason. where they worry about that. Yeah. Now you've seen the Atlantic and the New York Times mm-hmm. go ahead and hire Barry Weiss and Kevin Williamson and Brett Steven, Stevens, and it looks like from the outside that both the audience and then the people who work at these publications really reject the idea of having them there. What do you What do you make of that? Do you think that would happen at Vox if you I, hired one of those folks? Again, having one had people at Vox who were libertarians, and that didn't happen. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think it would happen. I want to be a little careful here, partly on what I comment on, because like, for instance, at The Atlantic, in Kevin Williamson there was hired for the ideas section. My wife works in the ideas section at The Atlantic. So there are things that mm-hmm. I don't want to, um, you know, just like for for keeping everybody— I Step back from the microphone. Exactly. So, but, but to use the New York Times example, um, there are certain kinds of folks you can hire. And I've hired people who have created controversy too. Um, you know, I, I hired—one of the early hires we had was a guy named Brandon Ambrosino who had um, a lot of very hetero, he was an LGBT writer who had a very a lot of very heterodox opinions in that space. And it created a lot of backlash. Um, you know, and, and it created a lot of backlash in part because he had been at places as a young writer where he was sort of pushed to do very, very controversial forms of his opinions. I think that there's been a tendency in part because organizations are looking to prove that they are balanced to hire very provocative versions yes. of the other side. Um, Kevin Williamson is a very, whatever you want to say about him, an extremely unusually provocative conservative writer. I mean, I'd argue that some of these folks that are supposedly provocative aren't that – Brett Stevens is, is fairly middle of the road. I think Brett Stevens – I think that's probably right. I don't but, think – And in my Twitter feed, he, oh my god, can you believe he said this? I, I think that the Brett Stevens thing is a little bit in a different – to me, and this is only my impression of these – I think that there's been a lot of backlash on Barry Weiss, particularly not when she was hired, but for things that she said subsequently. Right, or, they're, tweeted they're, subsequently. or tweeted subsequently. Williamson was literally the moment he was hired and things right. he had said. Stevens, um, I think some people didn't love the hire. I don't remember it. And again, this could be my – I don't remember it as being like a like – a, total meltdown collision. I think initially, like, oh, because he was a never-Trumper, right? Yeah, so I he think, fits sort of in, like, conservative, but not too conservative. He doesn't like Trump, just like you. 
Yep. And so, you know, and I think the post has a lot of different people right. in these sort of different spaces. So I, I just, I think we've been in a thing recently, and I'm not sure that this is not actually a new thing emergent, that these, this will get harder and harder and like the, the Twitter outrage will get higher and higher. But I don't know. I think that if, I think I could name a bunch of conservatives that the Times or the Atlantic could have hired who would not have created these kinds of problems despite not holding super different yeah. views. I think, that there is, the I think most... that there is a question of, yeah. and this is true no matter which direction you're hiring from, there are a lot of liberals I could hire who have made extremely provocative arguments who if I hired them, there would be a backlash from the right or there would be a backlash from another part of the left or maybe they have views on Israel that, you know, yeah. y- y- you can, I've been, around a lot of versions of this. And I think that part of it also is like, well, literally not just like, not just imagining the conservatives or liberals or whoever an undifferentiated mass, but who did you just hire? And like, what do they believe? And like, do you want to stand by that or not? And, you know, I think in a lot of cases you should stand by it. I've had to, st- I've made decisions like that and stood by them. And I think it was the right decision, but, um, you, you, but, it, but you, you know, you, you have to make choices about individuals. I, I think we get into trouble when we just see them as like, Everybody is just a nameless representative of an ideology. You mentioned you're no longer running Vox.com. Mm-hmm. You're editor at large. This is a site you launched four years ago. Um, why aren't you running it? Because the one, because we had amazing people who could run it better than me. The big reason is that I do sort of three things um, or was doing three things. Uh, one is I was managing the organization, right? I was a, what I like to call the manager of last resort. If a problem didn't get solved, eventually it came to me. <laughs> Um, two is I sort of have a big strategic role at Vox. I help imagine and launch new products. I help kind of chart our course. And then I have been my whole career a writer and like a creator. And I was never willing to give that up. And as we got bigger and bigger, Vox is I think is well over 100 people now. I could not do all three of those things. And of those three things, the one I am unquestionably the worst at and that I uh, like do not kind of bear well myself is managing like was the that personal your roadmap? Did you think I want to get this thing up to a size and then I'm going to step aside? No, I actually didn't realize. It's not not that it wasn't my roadmap. It's not that I thought I'd necessarily run it forever. But I, until we got, I liked managing at the post, and I like managing at Box too, actually. But by the way, I've, I've seen you. I've seen you in meetings. Like you're someone who gets passionate about uh, workflow. Absolutely, software. I do. You're into this stuff. I am very into it. I found that when I was managing, when we got big enough, I was sort of managing the managers of managers. I was dealing with problems that I had actually like to just be honest about it, trouble putting down myself. I can deal with the stress of a lot of our editorial management really well. I can deal with the stress of my own editorial work really well. I can deal with the stress of launching a Netflix show pretty well. The stress of knowing people are unhappy or knowing that I have to have a series of conversations with them about what's going wrong, or or even like much more normal stuff than that. Just like you just got to deal with the day to day of you know like redesigning an organization. It's not for me. And over the years at Vox, I wouldn't have stepped down if it wasn't the case that I could look around me and say people have risen up here and taken responsibility who are just genuinely better at this than me. And so if I had thought. And, and I mean this very truly, if I thought the best thing for the organization would have been for me to continue on in that role, I would have done it. Um, I feel a lot of responsibility towards Vox and a lot of love for it. I mean, it's like, you know, it is the thing that I feel most passionate about in my working life. Um, 
but I didn't. Lauren Williams is an incredible, incredible manager. Allison Rocky is an incredible, incredible manager. You know, so we had, I could look around me and say, there are parts of this job that I'm shirking that are becoming central to it, that I can no longer pretend that by managing the product, I'm actually managing the organization. And so it is no longer the best thing for me to, to be continuing on in and, this. And to be practical about it, right? Jim Bankoff, Vox Investors, folks like that, they're happy because you're still contributing to Vox.com. You're making new products for them. You're appearing on the site. Um, you're publishing, even that you're on book leave right now, but you're still publishing thousands of words, what, a weekly? You're doing a, a weekly story? No, or, no, or no. Just I, periodically? No, I only, I published one story while I have on, on leave that was mostly written before I went on. on. While I've been on leave, I'm working a lot on the Netflix show that's and I'm doing my own podcast. Last week. I had mostly written that That, that one was in the can? All yep. right. So it was like, I had to do some editing on it that hadn't gotten right. done. Ah, that's some of the That's the only thing explained. I've put up. But, okay, but this is, this is where I was headed, which is um, you had this fight discussion with Sam Harris, uh, a podcaster, ideologue. I think um, he would say he's not a conservative, to be fair to him. We, we, this would be a whole other hour to go deep into mm-hmm. it. Um, so I'm not going to ask you to, to recast that discussion. Sure. Um, the thing that amazes me, and other people noticed this as well, was, was both of you, I think, at one point published your email exchanges. No, just he did. Just he did. Okay. There are thousands of words, and most of them are from you. It's, it's you explaining your point, you going deep into why why you said or didn't think this, or why you do think this. And again, I can't I can't summarize why our other writers did. I was in yes. between a piece we had published yes. and his anger about a piece we had published. It was not my piece at this point. I Later read on, that as you piece. initially being polite and thoughtful and trying to respond to someone who's upset with you, and he's a person of some stature, and so you want to take him seriously. It becomes when you're reading this, it becomes quite clear that he's unhappy and is going to continue to be unhappy. You're continuing to respond. With these emails that if you printed them out, would go pages long. I, you know, if you're listening to this podcast at this point, you, you have a sense of that. You know, Ezra can be verbose, which is good. But I just don't understand how I you. Had, I think I, I don't even know if that's negged. No, it's not. <laughs> just straight no. up. I just, I just don't know. I literally don't know how you had the time to engage in that because you're doing a lot of other stuff, like launching a a, a Netflix show. If I write a paragraph, if I write a paragraph long email, I feel like I kind of went on a bit. So literally, is this is this standard for you? To have that sort of cold? What's, no, what's, that, what's, that was a little bit. Right, what's the right word for that? I, I went into that email exchange expecting a very different outcome. What had happened there was, again, we had published a piece about his podcast. He didn't like the piece. He he had, he challenged me to do a podcast with him publicly. His producer emailed me. I said, sure, like, yeah. give me Sam's email. We'll talk this out. Um I basically, I had just come back from a vacation and so had not actually been involved in the editing or commissioning of this piece. And so I, first, some of the emails were me trying to understand what the nature of the fight was here. That's like what happens at the beginning. Then he's like, I just sort of assumed like this would come to some sort of conclusion. Either I would do the podcast or he would calm down. It didn't go that way. Um, he kept getting angrier and angrier. Um, and so eventually it's like me trying to figure out, are we going to do the podcast? Yeah. It, it was a pretty abnormal situation. That is, um, that is not your standard customer service. I, no, I found his reactions to be part of like why I kept trying to like double down and re-explain was I was a little bit befuddled by his reactions. Uh, and so like my impulse on that was like, I must just not be being clear enough. It is a weird <laughs> thing because he publishes them and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to publish the Ezra Klein emails and you'll see. And you read them, and if you can keep reading them, you think, well, Ezra seems to be patiently trying to explain his argument, which doesn't really change. It doesn't. You don't. You don't appear to have lost that argument. It was a bizarre exchange. It, it was a lot. I I would say to because just playing this out there, I found ultimately then you know we had a like this came out much later like when he published emails we had a sort of secondary debate. I debated him directly. Um, you, you I did found do that the podcast whole thing. Initially, I did. Right? We did. Yeah. No, this he 
challenged me. He privately rescinded the thing. This all went fallow for a year, basically. Then he like sort of tweaked me on Twitter. I published an article that I sort of said the things I had always wanted to say, yeah. things I said in those emails, but I'd never published on this publicly at all. Then we did a podcast together a couple weeks ago. People can find it on my podcast under the Sam Harris debate. I found it actually really helpful um, as a going through this as a kind of insight into I really, really hate that this thing has been called the intellectual dark web. I think that's it's like <laughs> I think that we are seeing the development of a cleavage in American life that is not traditionally left right but is a cleavage about social justice, is a cleavage about um, political correctness, is a cleavage about what people would call identity politics, although I, I, don't, I don't think that framing is exactly right. And having a, like really digging into sort of what is uniting and seeing sort of what is uniting folks like Sam Harris, who I think sees himself as actually a liberal, with a Ben Shapiro, with a Jordan Peterson, with a Dave Rubin, with an et cetera, et cetera, for me was a really helpful kind of insight into something I'd been seeing and sensing for a long time, but had not engaged with enough directly to understand what it actually was. So, you know, part of why I spent a lot of time on that is that I actually had been a listener of his podcast. I had enjoyed some of what I, I didn't agree with him a lot of times, but I you yeah. know, thought he was interesting. And so something was happening here that I didn't understand. And like, that's where I get interested as a journalist. Um, and, you know, that whole situation to me has ended up being like profoundly clarifying about things I think I'm going to end up covering. We're all going to end up covering a lot in the coming years. Does some of this could so boil overall, down I'm to pretty happy about race because that discussion is about race. The, the, the last essay you just put out is a lot about you, you guys think this is bad, but actually if you're African-American, American history has been pretty awful for a lot. It seems like – I don't know if this is true. Is race something that is um, – Newly interesting to you, or or I wouldn't say newly interesting, emphasis? but I think that in I think that to try to understand the politics of the Trump era, to try to understand the politics of this era broadly, an era where we just had the first African American president, an era where in 2013 for the first time a majority of infants under three were non-white, an era where like we're going to become a majority minority country by roughly 2045, so not that long, like 25 years. I think that the amount of this that is both explicitly and implicitly about race and worries about power. So much of the political correctness debate is actually about um, folks who are oftentimes non-white, though not exclusively folks who are non-white, getting the numbers and power and confidence to say, actually, the way you've been talking for a long time is incredibly hurtful or unnerving or just locks me out of the conversation. And I think a big question right now is when you hear that, do you say, oh, that's ridiculous? Or do you say, oh, if you think that, like, I need to take a second look at this. And I think that there is a lot of folks um, who this is very profoundly threatening. And, 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 like, it always is threatening, right, when you see this kind of change in society. And I think Trump is one expression of it. I think this kind of emergent sort of a more intellectual but nevertheless kind of anti-PC group is another expression of it. I think you see, you know, certainly also like a lot of energy on the other side of this debate. And, you know, that's a side of it I understand better. Yep. But this cleavage, which I think is like very central and explains Trump a lot better than a traditional taxes, no taxes cleavage does. I, I think you have to look at this as um, fundamentally about race and other kinds of demographic change and the fundamental driver of political conflict right now and possibly in the coming, you know, couple of decades, unless we have, you know, something massive like a war or a, another financial crisis that displaces it. 
This is why of the three episodes of your show that I watched, I went into the racial wealth gap one. I found the most uh, intriguing. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Which, by the way, I saw you co-wrote as well. I, I did. It was a coincidence. All right, so I've, I've tied it back to the show. Yay me. Ezra, I, f- I figured this was going to be pushing up against an hour. We should make this a two-parter. We'll do it. We'll do another one in a year. Deal? I'd love to. Thank you for coming. Thanks to you guys for listening. Before we go, one last ask. Tell someone else about this show. Thank you to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Rico Media for free. There is no paywall here yet. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edits this show. Thanks to Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson, my producers. This is Rico Media. I'm back next week. I will see you then. Today's show was brought to you by IBM. Technology today has never been smarter, but smart only matters when you put it to good use. Together, we can build a smarter future for all of us. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart.